0: gentlemen welcome back to the podcast and i'm joel this is the coaches rising podcast this is for all of you who care about coaching facilitation deep transformational work and i hope this finds you well in this episode i'm going to be speaking with alan watkins and alan is the ceo and co-founder of complete they do leadership development for leaders and teams and organizations and combine things like um, uh, working with the physiological aspect of their clients using heart rate variability, combining that with developmental psychology and uh, so on. It's, um, it's a rich approach that they take. They work with companies like Unilever, Tesco's, Specsavers, Santander, and so on. And we're going to be talking today about development and we'll be exploring in the beginning. I'm kind of bringing in this question of, hey, do these developmental models need to be expanded and de- you know, uh, to include different ways of developing? And you'll have to hear what Alan says about that. It's very intriguing. He makes a kind of rallying cry in a sense. And in particular, we'll be talking about the values-based stages of development and how that applies to leaders and organizations and what Alan sees as the kinds of organizations that we need in the world. And he sees organizations and business as being one of the vehicles that can take us through the next series of crises we face. Uh, what kinds of ways they will be operating and how they will be seeing the world. So it's a rich conversation. Again, I'd really appreciate if you share this podcast. If you are not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about the cool offerings for coaches and facilitators that we create outside of this podcast, then you can do so by heading to coachesrising.com. And you'll find a sign-up box on the homepage there. You'll also find previous podcasts there. So, without further ado, here's the podcast with Alan Watkins.
1: Alan, good to be with you today. How's things? Uh, things are really good, thanks. Uh, like everybody, uh, enjoying the opportunity that a Global Pandemic presents us all. What uh, One thought I was thinking about, Joel, is that it's probably the first time ever that every human being on the planet has had to face the same challenge. Right. You know, like e- even when we had world wars, you know, there were parts of the world that weren't involved, but now every human being has had to think about covid and viral pandemics and so on. So I think I don't think that's happened in humanity's history before. So I think it's a very interesting time to be alive. Do you think that that might there might be an Of course, there
0: will be a consequence of that. I'm just wondering whether it will be a sense of shared unity.
1: Doesn't seem to be happening, does it? But, yeah. Well, uh, well, yes and no. I mean, it's very interesting. I think we live in paradoxical times. So, yes, in a way, there is a sense of shared unity that every nation state has had to figure out what to do uh, to look after their their, uh, citizens. Uh, And no, in the sense of when you look across the world, there's a a profound lack of integration in healthcare systems all over the world. I mean, we can't even share data, we can't even agree what a COVID death is or a COVID case is. So there's both, you know, there's this sort of unifying nature of we're all facing the same challenge and a a very obvious disaggregation that we're not even communicating effectively. So that's the paradoxical world we now live The two poles emerge at the same time. You know, we're more connected through social media, but people feel more disconnected at the same time. You know, the two poles, that's the paradoxical world.
0: And what do you think is needed? And I could say that in these times, but also, you know, maybe I'm taking this into slightly more political territory, but you're a doctor as well. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, you know, with our strategy with this pandemic, what's it? What's it asking of us? What's needed, perhaps?
1: Well, in addition to being a medical doctor, I've got a degree in psychology, a PhD in immunology. So it's kind of almost the perfect triumvirate for thinking about COVID. It's an immunological disease that has significant psychological consequences and, of course, medical consequences. Um, and I think um, it makes us think much more carefully about healthcare provision. Um and, uh, you know, have we got it right? And, and this is one of these wicked problems. Uh, given the world is speeding up and accelerating, um, humanity is creating a whole range of wicked problems for itself. And by wicked, I mean beyond complicated. So wicked is an academic term, meaning beyond complicated, right? So, um, you know, and affordable healthcare is one of the wicked problems. So what do societies do? Because there's no doubt we can spend more and more money on trying to build a healthcare system that will never adequately take care of all of its citizens. Um, And most um, industrialized economies can't generate enough cash to blanket cover all of their citizens. So how does a society create an affordable healthcare system? So I think the global pandemic has caused people to think about that. And we maybe need to have fresh thinking in what should our healthcare system look like? so I think it's been very interesting that, you know, we've had to stay at home, and in staying at home, it's basically stopped humanity in its tracks and made us think about what on earth are we doing and, you know, do we need to change some of what we're doing? And my, my conclusion is we absolutely do need to change quite a lot of what we're doing if we want to survive the next 500 years.
0: Mm. Yeah, it does feel like we're in a developmental dojo right now and there's yeah. this, yeah, some sense of a horizon Looming, and um, one of the things we're going to talk about today is, is um, you know, this idea of identity and developmental psychology. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, something I've been thinking about, and we, we kind of checked in about in our check-in the other day, was like this idea that do, you know, that uh, traditionally we've seen it that there's these higher stages or, or later stages of development and they have a, you know, more uh, complex way of making meaning and seeing the world. And those are the kinds of um, stages of development that that we need in leaders, you know, Mm -hmm. in order to solve these challenges. But, but I'm, you know, if you look at the statistics, it's like small amounts of people head into those um, later stages. And I'm sure you're going to challenge some of what I'm saying, but I wonder whether we've got time, you know, like, do we have time to do that kind of work to develop people in that way? And what other might there be other like higher leverage vectors that we might focus on? So, you know, maybe I'm going to be a bit of a devil's advocate today and I know you're um, quite brilliant in this area and you'll probably pull apart some of my ideas, which is great, which is what I'm looking for. So, Mm. you know, what do you think about this idea? Have we got time? Like, what time horizons are you thinking in?
1: Well, in, time. interestingly, um, uh, I wrote a book a couple of years ago with Ken Wilber uh, called Wicked and Wise, looking at all you know, the, the top dozen wicked issues in the world, you know, whether it's affordable health care, criminal justice, poverty. Uh, climate change is the example Ken and I used in the book. Um, uh, because climate change will uh, kill humanity before AI takes over, So a lot of people talk about AI and when the machines take it, you know, that's not going to kick in in any significant negative way uh, before climate change. Because climate change is the hot topic uh, and it will affect the temperature rise will affect crop production. So uh, when Ken and I wrote the book and I did as background research, spoke to some of the best climate change scientists off the record, like, what's really going on, you know, so get away from, you know, the International Panel on Climate Change and all the sort of public pronouncements. Just off the record, tell me honestly, what is the state of play? we talked to them, and then when when we wrote the book, you know, we were talking about, you know, we've got to make some radical changes in the next sort of 30 to 40 years, but now I think it's more 10 to 20 years. So I think that the the horizons have significantly shortened and, and partly the reason the timeline's shortened is because the mathematics of a runaway decompensated system. So when you look at complex systems and how quickly complex systems can change, the mass of change in complex systems is itself very complicated. Um, and so I th- I'm more now of the view that actually, you know, 10 to 20 years, if we don't make some radical changes, if humanity doesn't make some radical changes of how we're living on the planet, we'll get to a point where nothing we do will make any difference. You know, it, it becomes irreversible. Um, so have we got time? I'm, you know, what gets me up every morning, Joel, is, you know, the clock's ticking. You know, we've got to really lean in massively. Um, and as Ken Wilber would say, you know, wake up and grow up humanity. Because without the wake up and grow up, we're done for. Um, And it won't affect you and I so much, but it will affect our children and our children's children. Um, If we don't make some radical changes, then there's going to be some seriously unpleasant futures. But the good news is we've still got time, but we really need to lean in. Um, So that takes you to your vectors conversation, which is what are the things that need to happen? Now, you mentioned, you know, my interest in politics. And as you know, I've written a book about politics called Crowdocracy you know, why democracy has passed its sell-by date. Um, And it's for the same reason, by the way, that capitalism has passed its sell-by date. It's a developmental issue, right? Um, So I honestly think um, it's business leaders we need to look to because politics is currently in a global regression. I mean, it's going backwards. It's becoming more ethnocentric, more divisive. Uh, The recent presidential election shows how profoundly divided that country is You know, and in the UK, we can sit here smugly going, ha-ha, look how divided America is. But we're profoundly divided in the UK. I mean, Brexit proved that, right? Um, But most nation states are profoundly divided, and political leadership is really lacking and getting worse at the moment. Um, And religious leadership in most parts of the world, you know, was a busted flush 300 years ago. So it's down to business. Um, You know, business leaders, I honestly think, are the only... Uh, leaders that can now save the planet, particularly in the multinational companies, because multinational companies span multiple nations. Uh, most political leaders just pay attention to their own nation state, um, whereas big corporates—I uh, mean, some of the clients we work with—you know—work in sixty countries. Uh, I mean, one of our clients, uh, when COVID hit, was buying ventilators in Asia to ship to Mexico because they realised the Mexican healthcare system wasn't up to it.
0: Because. It- just, I will interject, I know, like, because a lot of people listening would say, like, oh, corporations, aren't they the of this whole problem? You know, like crony capitalism. We used yeah. to, you know, yeah. capitalism isn't really a free market.
1: It's all backhand. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, as I said, capitalism is a busted flush in its current uh, articulation because it, it creates profound levels of inequity, and there's a, there's a brilliant book, if anybody wants to read Robert Reich's book, who uh, Robert Reich was Clinton's uh, Labour secretary, called The System, uh, you know, who rigged it, you know, um, who rigged the system uh, and what we can do about it. Um, So it's a brilliant uh, articulation, and Robert actually names names, uh, interestingly, of who's rigged the system in their own favour, and it's basically the 1%. Um, So the current version of capitalism, which was born in the mid-'70s, it's not always been this version of capitalism, but the current version of capitalism born in the mid-'70s is massively rigged in the favour of 1%. So, it absolutely is a big part of the problem, but it's also therefore part of the solution because the power is in big businesses' hands. And there are some enlightened companies who are already woken up to the fact that we've got to move in a very different direction. So, for example, the, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah uh,
1: an example would be Dole uh, International, the tin pineapple people. Um, I know the uh, president of Dole very well, a good friend of mine. Um, is doing some phenomenal work and really trying to shift that company in terms of sustainable packaging and health and nutrition um, and uh, you know ethical supply chains. Um, so some of these companies, uh, Unilever might be another example. Um, you know, uh, Ben and Jerry's, uh, a subset of Unilever, um, uh, Patagonia. Um, some of these uh, companies are uh, awake and thinking about things in a much more enlightened uh, second-tier type way. Um, so there's hope, but you know, our, our business is specifically focused on the corporate community to try and uh, increase the scale and the number of uh, CEOs and C-suite leaders who are awake uh, and uh, sophisticated enough in their thinking to realise it's down to them. You know, mm. we can't be obsessed with quarterly performance and quarterly returns. I mean, that that's still important, you know, economic uh, generation, but we've got to see a much bigger picture in business. So business, I think, is our only hope. Yes, it's currently part of the problem in large measure, but it's also, I think, the main area of the solution.
0: Mm. Nice. And so then... That question I had about development, you know, in terms of have we got time to develop people? And you know, I'm playing around with this this thought, and we we explored this in our kind of check in a bit of like, are, do we have time to develop people? And then therefore is it time to maybe expand developmental models to include other vectors of of development, like people like Spring Cheng and Tom Murray are talking about how developmental models are very anglo european kind of uh, american centric and they emphasize ascending you know it's very ascending and we say that um all stages are um you know equal and honorable but actually the language we use to develop the later stages kind of does point to how you know they're more I, mean, I maybe better in in a lot of ways and that actually um, there's a descending needed too. like they both of those two writers speak about how we want to be also including a descending a deconstructing or um, um, a, a, a kind of simplicity or somatic knowing that um, you know is used for doing shadow work oh, like that so also. i think
1: yeah so i think one has to you know uh, be really precise in the way that we think about these things else we just get lost and confused, right. which is right. where a lot of practitioners are unfortunately um so uh, let's talk a little bit about vectors and then the ascending descending point so um you know before we start adopting or you know some sort of revision of our existing developmental model um actually uh, it's not widespread uh, and it's not adopted by corporations and it needs to be, right? So before, you know, the clever people revise the model, we need the model adopted as is. Um, You know, so one of the things uh, that we're doing is saying, look, um, those people who understand uh, developmental uh, frameworks and and the, the constraint that puts on human beings... Uh, need to start speaking one language. Um, Rather than arguing amongst ourselves, we've actually got to help the rest of the world to develop. Um, So one of the things we started doing ourselves is um, training all coaches uh, to use a um, a values assessment and, and get certified coaches so they can go out and use this assessment in their work with corporate leaders Um, So we're all now singing to the same song sheet and using some data to drive the developmental conversation. So, you know, if any coaches want to um, get certified, you know, we're doing that um, to help people uh, take a model out that really opens up corporate leaders to a new way of thinking about it. So I think we've got to implement that sort of stuff first before we then start to revise the models. Let's actually get the models because they're great models, they work, um, and these value systems uh, exist everywhere in the world. And when we've got 10,000 people on our database, and it doesn't matter whether you're in Japan or Latin America or North America or Europe, uh, these eight value systems exist. Um, and when we've got data on uh, all these different cultures. Um, so, uh, you know, I think uh, as a sort of a community of coaches, Uh, We've got to work better together rather than, um, you know, all saying slightly different things and confusing the marketplace. Uh, We're never going to change the vector if we don't start to speak the same language.
0: Like like if I could keep playing the devil's advocate here, um, I actually agree with you in the sense of like, yeah, we, I do, I do. And we, 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 I think we agree on this. It's like, we definitely need to start collaborating in ways that we just yeah. haven't in this field yeah. because yeah there's like um you know we're in this kind of game of uh, winning scarcity perhaps i mean i don't want to blanket everybody but you know it's like there's a way that i think we're being called in these times to collaborate in order to okay. to serve humanity yeah. more effectively And so I, so I love that. And then yet some people might say, um, but hang on a minute. Like I, uh, I also want to agree on what these models are, but um, I, I'm seeing something that I think is important. That's actually would make it more um, easily adopted, adapted or adopted by the business community at large, you know, and that, they might be saying that yeah that that these times are actually calling for that. That's the whole point. It's calling for it to be adapted in order to be adopted more effectively. So, well, the, so uh, I'm all in favour of you, maybe I need to get get a bunch of us in a conversation and then. You know,
1: well, like, uh, yeah. uh, my view would be it, it works. You know, I mean, it ain't broke, don't fix it. It actually works. I mean, we've got ten thousand people, and what we've seen is it opens them up to a conversation about their own development. Uh, the face validity is unbelievable because it's actually describing reality. So it's not really a theoretical framework. Uh, I mean, Claire Graves, when he wrote this, he based it on students that he saw. I mean, these things exist, right? Um, and so, yes, there's a, a sort of academic amongst ourselves. We can you know, adapt it a bit and improve it and read, you know, hone the quality of the language. But it ain't broken. You know, we yeah, don't. I need don't to think be... people are, people aren't saying it's, it's not like an ex, it's not like either
0: or. It's more like um, it's honouring the, the the absolute beauty. Right, but the
1: the risk is Joel is we throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, we spend right. all that time adapting the model when we haven't got it properly implemented. Right, and what will you know save the planet is we've got to implement on a massive scale. Yeah, you know, yeah. we've got we need coaches out there taking this developmental framework into all corporations, which is why we're licensing people. Right. Get in there. Start talking to people about the evolution of values. I mean, we can talk about other lines of development. Get in there. Start talking. Give them the data on themselves. Give them the data on their leadership team. And it opens up this incredible conversation, uh, you know, that reveals to them why they're connecting with their customer base or why they're not, or why their are tensions in the team or why there are not. So it, it actually works. Now, you know, away from the client interface, as, a, as coaches, a coaching community, we can chat about the adaptations and the honing of the, the languaging and so on, but it's not broken. It, 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 you know, so we need to, you know, well, I don't want to throw the baby out of the bathwater. I'll say, look, well, we can't take it out there on a massive scale because we've got to adapt the language. No, no, we've got to get it out there on the massive scale. That's 90% of the challenge. 10% is, you know, evolution of languaging and honing and all of that. Yeah. But we've got to get it out there. And until yeah. we do, we're just confusing the market because we keep going out with a different adaptation, a different adaptation, a different adaptation. And the market's confused. We need to speak with one voice uh, yeah. as a bunching, as a co- coaching community, developmental coaches.
0: Yeah. It sounds like you you like primarily you're working with the values-based developmental model that you know. We, we, we down work down. with eight different
1: okay. developmental models, right? Because our view is, as you know, that uh, in most businesses there are eight lines. I mean, as Ken Wilber would tell you, there's there's hundreds of lines of development, but in most businesses, most of those lines of development don't matter. So, for example, you know, I could develop your cooking line, right? right. But if you don't run a restaurant, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I'd be a zero on the cooking line. I mean, I virtually burn water, you know, I'm mean, terrible. Um, but um, in most businesses, eight lines really what matter in most businesses. Which, which are those? So, so um, uh, physical, the physical line of development. And by that, I don't mean, you know, how big is my bicep? Uh, I mean, you know, how much energy have I got to get the job done and what is the quality of that energy? And so we track that uh, using some heart rate variability technology. So we track people's biology, and we've been doing this for 25 years. We've probably got the biggest database in the world of leaders' biology um, and, uh, you know, what data you can extract from that to help the coaching process. So so physical, uh, cognitive, emotional and social intelligence, values – and ego. So those are the five that you can't see, right? Um, The internal lines of development. Um, So the certification in people's values is just one of those five lines, right? So, um, and then of course, even if you're the Dalai Lama on the inside, it doesn't really matter if it doesn't affect your behavior. So the observable behavior, you've got to become more sophisticated in your behavior. Behavior is the final common pathway to changing the outcome. So uh, we've got a, uh, a behavioural scale uh, that we use with corporations where you know, uh, we can uh, unpack that a bit if you're interested. So uh, your inner sophistication has got to ultimately result in a change in your behaviour. Uh, and it's not just a binary, present-absent type thing. It's levels of sophistication in your behaviour. So imagine you've got altitude and that you're a very sophisticated operator in the way that you do things, yeah. but you live in a cave. Ah, so networks are important. You've got to be highly networked in the world today, um, and then you've got to be influential in those networks. So the five you can't see, which is physical, cognitive, uh, emotional and social intelligence, values, ego, and then the three you can see, which is behaviour, networks, and influencing networks. So those are the eight lines of development that we believe matter in pretty much every business in the world. Mm -hmm. So... I'm super curious
0: how do you um how do you go about diagnosing where somebody might need to go first um you know i i guess I'm like looking at the bigger picture of like the journey of going in and up leveling people's uh development or the company's development so they become yeah. more generative or sophisticated um they create more value in the world those yeah. kinds of things yeah.
1: Uh, Well, you've got to start with where they're at. And so of all those different uh, eight lines of development, um, you know, there's sort of two or three that we tend to lead with most of the time, um, uh, you know, depending on the actual company and the issues that that company is wrestling with. Um, So when we're individually coaching people, we'll often quantify their biology. So we do that every single time we coach people. Uh, usually because it's quite surprising. I mean, people are pretty, you know, taken aback by how much we can tell about their leadership just by looking at their biology. Uh, Because for most people, it hasn't occurred that what's happening biologically affects what's happening behaviorally. You know, most people haven't made that connection. Um, So I'll give you a fun story. I was coaching uh, the CEO of a credit card company a while back and I'd got a biology and I said, look, just before we start coaching you, I'm just kind of curious to know how your history exam is going. And she's she's like taken aback, like, how do you know I'm doing a history exam? I said, uh, but you are, aren't you? And she said, well, actually I am, but how do you know that? I said, oh, I can see it in your biology. So that completely spooked her. But, yeah, it. but yeah, I'm all, it doesn't make me go, how, but how? how yeah, do you how? Do you know so so what, what was happening is with some clever mathematics, when you're looking at uh, the fluctuations in people's heart rate or their heart rate variability, You can use fast-furry mathematics to deconstruct those patterns. And one of the things you can extract is changes in adrenaline levels uh, throughout the 24 hours. And, And most human beings should have high adrenaline during the day, should be lower in the evening, and it should be very low at night. But this particular woman, the first two hours of her sleep, she had this enormous adrenaline surge. In fact, the adrenaline levels in the first two hours of her sleep was higher than it was during the day. And that's very typical in people who have a retrospective stance. It's like her head touches the pillow, she immediately starts burning fuel because she's looking back and reviewing her entire day, right? right? So I said to her, look, you're a woman of 52 with no children, so you'll have a bit of time on your hands. You're a very, very bright woman. Now, a very bright woman with time on her hands is going to be doing an exam. And given this retrospective pattern, it's going to be a history exam. It's a simple deduction. <laughs> wow. So that okay. her uh, chin hits the table. And I said, here's the interesting thing, right? is I bet you before you have your board meeting, you probably spend an hour looking at last month's minutes. I do do that. Have you been talking to my secretary? I said, no, 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 it's the same pattern, right? And the reason you've asked us in is you're trying to invigorate your leadership team, but you keep talking about where you were a year ago and what you're trying to move away from. What you're not articulating is what you're moving towards, the future. You're not telling that story well enough. Now, interestingly, when we coached her to articulate the future better... And then we measured a biology six months later, the pattern had completely disappeared. So we had objective evidence
0: that we fixed it. Yeah. I mean, this is uh, Richard Biasis is doing research on um, how, uh, yeah, like visioning the different networks that opens up in, in our nervous system, in our brain, and how that's conducive to learning and growth. Uh, so, you know, I love hearing about this stuff because it's like, you know, it it's, it gives us really clear evidence about things that work. And um, I know we spoke in our last conversation, a lot about the physical side and the work you did with the great British rowing team. And yeah. I can feel my super, my super excitement to go into that. And then, and, and like, let's kind of move into the, some of the other realms. Like what, the first question that comes up is do you find then that somebody's cognitive level of development influences their heart rate
1: variability, for example? These are separate lines of development. So one of our principles in building out these uh, developmental tools across these eight lines is you've got to measure these lines separately. Right, of course. You you would never go to the doctor and have a blood test and a chest X-ray in the same test. Yeah, but I guess I'm
0: wondering, is there a correlation across the lines? Uh, Certainly,
1: um, in terms of the cognitive, uh, uh, the correlation is less than you think. Um, And, you know, because a lot of organizational psychologists, I mean, we've been privileging cognitive sophistication for more than 100 years. And what's interesting in most corporations, of the eight lines, it's the least interesting. And I say that because most people who've made it to the C-suite are smart enough. So subtle nuances in their cognitive processes uh, is probably the least predictive of their success. Or their ability to handle uh, uh, greater levels of complexity. Most of them are smart enough, so we hardly ever of the eight lines. That's the one we 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 do the least work in. Interesting, interesting. because yeah.
0: uh, um, I think a lot of people might go there. Yeah, yeah. Where,
1: where do you find is the most important? Um, well, uh, it, it varies by you know individual leader and company. Um, but as I said. Uh, what you're trying to do is use one of these assessment instruments to open up the conversation about their own evolution. Um, and so, uh, the easiest one, which is why, you know, we're making it available to everybody is values because it has the most face validity. Um, when you start to talk to somebody about their biology, most people are so profoundly disconnected from their biology. Uh, you know, you have to work quite a while to help them make those connections. You know, um, something called interoception, which is my awareness of my biology, right? Mm. So, for a, a very simple way, we're just about to bring out um, a well being app uh, where people get taught this. And one of the um, things mm. on the app uh, is to test interoception. So, there's a heartbeat detection task like, uh, can you guess what your heart rate is? Now, most people are nowhere near, oh, yeah, my heart rate's currently about 90 and it's 65. You know, or it's 65 and it's 90. Most people's interception uh, is very poor. So looking at their biology um, uh, or frankly, their emotional and social intelligence, we'll come back to in a moment. We're pretty poor at that. So the easiest line of development that people can plug into pretty quickly is the values because they've experienced it. Um, they've experienced, you know, these different motivational systems in their workers. And Can their you just colleagues. name
0: two, like, just so re- listeners, like, just name maybe a couple of the most important ones or, you know, some right. of the common, so, common so, ones. Right. Yeah.
1: yeah, so these eight levels. So the two most common levels are uh, what what Graves called the red value system, which is more about um, pace, urgency, direction, making things happen, and, um, they can be quite autocratic, uh, very good at simplification and clarification, very good in startup, very good leaders in turnaround. Um, so they kind of kick ass and take names. Um, so that driving autocratic leadership. Um, so you see a lot of C-suite players operate from that value system. Um, that surprises might, me. What's that? That surprises me. Why is that? uh
0: I, again like from what I, I i it's been a while since i connected to uh i, I think i come at this mostly through spiral dynamics which was in yeah yeah spiral Dynamics. yeah mm-hmm. um i always would assume that getting up to that c-suite level would require um more sophistication in terms of um yeah yes in, including that red uh driving kind of um stage of values but also that it needs to be
1: more nuanced as well, because you're well, people a lot. Don't forget they may have cognitive sophistication, but what really matters to them, that's the values, right? So it's a different thing. So okay. uh, it's easy to confuse cognitive sophistication with value sophistication. You know, so often people's cognitive sophistication is way in advance of their value sophistication. You know, what really matters is I'm in charge. I get to call the shots. I'm going to tell you what happens, and I'm going to run this business as a, uh, a hierarchical business, as a hub and spoke with me at the centre, and I'm going to have bi-directional relationships with my entire leadership team. That's still pretty widespread in many corporations. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'm the boss here. I'm going to say what happens. You know, I'm going to veto if I need to. Um, so that's still pretty common. It's not the commonest, but it's still pretty widespread uh, in business um and particularly if you're having to turn the business around or open up a new geography that actually is the value system you want um so you find these in uh, a lot of tech startups this kind of energy um you know you find it um uh, certainly uh, in sales organizations uh, a lot of those value systems um so that would be one of them um And then, as you know, it evolves through uh, red into blue. If you take Claire Graves or Ken calls this amber, the next level up is that sort of blue. Uh, It's a bit more collective. So, you know, how do we as a bunch of individuals start to build some process and some infrastructure? Because the the red leader is basically shooting from the hip. Um, And frankly, you know, uh, um, in their downside, they've become a bit of a bully and an autocrat. Um, so actually, you know, the company's at risk here of, you know, just random decisions from our red leader. So the collective gang together to put some principles, some processes in place. And so all businesses have to go through that stage. So once you've started to make a business work, you've got to put some infrastructure. That's the blue value system. Um, right. so like, ru- like way, like rules or principles, of- Yeah, rules and principles. Right, exactly. Um, And so that value system was born uh, post-World War II when, you know, the world and and certainly Europe had had its fill of of toxic red leaders, you know, um, Hitler, Stalin, those kind of people. And that's where the UN was born, the WHO was born, you know, and process, uh, you know, um, certainly, you know, Japan and Germany embraced this value system dramatically and it's still driving their economy today, you know. Um, you know they've become lean manufacturing in Japan, Kaizen, um, and uh, you know the efficiency of the German uh, industrial base. Uh, they've made a real virtue uh, out of that. Whereas the the winners of World War Two sort of went lightly through the Blue Valley system and got to the Orange Valley. So much more pragmatic, uh, much Scientific more materialism, rational. materialism, um, adaptability. adaptability. You know, there is an interesting. Um, sort of penchant right now for something called AQ or the adaptability quotient. And that's basically orange, you know, pragmatic, you know, sort of bend the rules, you know, because, because they've experienced the constraint, the dark side of blue was the bureaucracy um, and the rigidity. Uh, and it kind of, as a model, it broke in the sort of seventies. So certainly in the UK, you know, the winter of discontent in the seventies. Um, and then that ushered in, you know, the Reagan and Thatcher era, you know, loads of money, Gordon Gecko, greed is good. And there was a huge kind of economic boom. Uh, but it, uh, it created the stuff that we talked about. It created this toxic model of capitalism, which we're still suffering under now. You know, greed is good, you know, uh, uh, and its pinnacle was in the global financial crisis of 2008. So when you tell these stories, uh, most business leaders can see it. They've experienced it. And so of all the eight lines of development the values is often a great place to start for coaches right. because it's got so much face validity. And so if I come back to this question of the times we find
0: ourselves in, particularly yeah. the environmental uh, states of the world, then uh, and we talked about there are business, businesses that can actually be a player in, in creating the change we need. Then what kind of values uh, do you feel that businesses need to be uh, growing into that, you know, become if that becomes the value level where where suddenly they become a positive force for. So in in
1: 1960, only two percent of the planet had reached green, which is the level beyond orange. Right. Only two percent. But now it's 20 percent. So green is really the leading edge of value systems in the world. And there are many companies that are sort of leaning into this. And actually, interestingly, COVID has accelerated this. Um, So the HRD, the human resource director of most companies, and by the way, uh, that's an orange articulation of that role, has sort of morphed into the CHRO, which is an adapted version of the HRD. They've become CHROs. But in the green companies, they've become CPOs, Chief People Officer. Yeah. And well-being has become... Well-being has become a big thing, right? So the green value system is basically about taking care of the people, um, you know, and uh, all the green agenda, which started in the 60s, you know, with equal rights, uh, civil rights, civil liberties, um, inclusivity, diversity... Uh, so that's really booming and is going to boom for some time Um, so the green value system there's 20 percent of the planet now has reached the green value system but our salvation to your point about the clock ticking really lies beyond green Um, and there's still only about two percent who've made it beyond green so the green is the leading value system but it's not the cutting edge the cutting edge is yellow and turquoise beyond that and that's where we're really going to be saying we have to wake up enough people into that yellow turquoise, what's called second tier. Yeah. And if enough leaders can make it to the, that value system, that is the game changer.
0: And so, um, well, let's first question is like, what is that organization and leader in that that um, second tier? And how do we tran- how do we make that transition? Are we are we talking now about the you know non hierarchical? uh
1: holocratic kind of
0: organization
1: yeah, halacr- 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 driven yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, so holacracy hal- is a, is a yellow technology and the book i wrote about uh, uh politics called crowdocracy is the turquoise version so if you look at decision making in companies the red value system is autocratic so if you've got a board of 10 people you've basically got the ceo versus nine others so there's a debate chat 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 okay i've heard enough the answer's x and everybody goes oh Oh, we're going to have to toe the line because the boss has spoken, right? So that's autocratic. That's 1v9. And then you get, you know, the blue value system, which is co-leadership. So it's the CEO and the CFO or the CEO and the COO. So you've got mum and dad, basically, and eight children. Um, So most people will have experienced, I mean, it's much better at handling complexity because two heads are better than one. So it isn't 1v9, it's 2v8. So monarchy, uh, theocracy is often this type of decision-making process. So that emerged um, uh, and, you know, the king and the queen create a court. Uh, But if it's the king and the queen, uh, you know, the king's sort of autocratic bullying is slightly tempered by the queen or mum tempers dad or dad tempers mum, right? So it's able to handle more sophistication. But as the world became more complicated, 2v8 wasn't enough. And then we had this incredible leap forward to democracy, six feet four, right? So that's three times better than the mum and dad, you know, because you've got six people involved in the decision-making. But actually what's become really apparent in most political systems, most democratic systems, is democracy is not very democratic. Um, And that's what we wrote about in the book Crowdocracy. Democracy is past its sell-by date. Its high tide mark was in the year 2000, where there were roughly 120 democracies in the world, now there are only 102. So it's gone past its sell-by date, and you can look in the UK and the US thinking there's something profoundly wrong here with democratic process. Um, and the reason being is democracy bakes in dissent. So in a boardroom of 10 people, if you've got six v. four, it's not that the six are deciding, it's the two swing votes. Mm. And democracy bakes in dissent. So if you're the four people who've been outmaneuvered or outvoted at the board, those four people spend their entire life trying to win two votes so they can become the six. So the power really sits with the two swing votes, not with the six individuals, right? So it bakes in dissent, which is why people say, oh, I hate the politics in this company. That's because you're running this democratically and you bake in political dissent. That's what democracy does. It's its fault line. And so then you get to sociocracy, which is the green version, um, uh, which stalls and then collapses back down into democracy because you get stuck in consensual hell. That's why holacracy is a leap forward, because you get to 10-0 with holacracy. But crowdocracy, you get to 10,000 v. 0. So crowdocracy is basically holacracy at scale. Mm. So I'm interested by
0: this because we run our company using holacracy and... Um... Right. I don't know about Crowdocracy, so I'm going to have to check your book out. Um, so presumably there. Tell me about that before I
1: ask Well, you are well. looking some of the things like integrative decision-making, which you'll be familiar with, uh, you know, how do you get that working not only within the, the, the leadership teams, if it's 10 people, how do you have a rich debate uh, and get all 10 people to agree? So I remember doing a, a workshop uh, a while back uh, with one of the sort of European airlines. This was back in the day when there were airlines flying around. Um, and there, there was a team of 17. Uh, and this was the ops uh, leadership team of this airline. So uh, most of the staff, you know, 90% of all the staff of this airline work, work for these people in this team. Um, and we made a list of all the complex problems they're chewing on. You know, like, what, what's, what are all the difficult things you're facing? um we've got a list of I don't know, 30 items i said right, i could pick the hardest issue and they picked one how long have you been stuck on that hmm. three years i said right i'm going to teach you a different way of having the, this debate uh, and within the next hour all 17 of you are going to agree on the answer and they all just started laughing and they said that's no way that's going to happen because we've been stuck on this for three years so i took them through the integrative decision making process and 40 minutes later all 17 people agreed on the answer Mm. Uh, to the extent they were sort of embarrassed, like, oh, my goodness, you know, how come we were stuck for three years? We, we just sorted this out in 40 minutes. And it's because they were having the wrong type of debate. Right. They were discussing yeah. it in the more wrong way. kind of, yeah, yeah, right. You yeah. know, much more Socratic, you know, uh, ego-driven, yeah. I'm right, you're wrong kind of nonsense going on. So when we ran integrated decision-making, we were enab- enabled them to actually get all 17 people behind that And so what crowdocracy does is how do you then get that happening across the entire company? How do you do that at scale? And it unlocks the potential in an organisation because you get unbelievable engagement and alignment because people are genuinely participating. Uh, And what you saw in the recent presidential election is many of those states, their votes don't count because they always vote the same way. You know, so the decision-making came down to half a dozen states. You know, and it wasn't even half a dozen states. It was a few thousand people in those half a dozen states, a few thousand wards, you know. So that's not, you know, people don't feel like their voice counts in many modern allegedly democratic societies. Mm. And we've got the same problem in the UK. If you look at the 650 MPs in the UK, only three of them actually have a majority. Did you know that? No. Only three MPs in, in the British Parliament actually have a majority in their own constituency. So right. most of the MPs in Parliament are voted in by the largest minority in their constituency. So basically, if you get 26% of the vote in your constituency, you're in there. Yeah. yeah. Which means most of the people voted for somebody other than you. Yeah. But yeah. you still got in. Right. Right. That's not democratic.
0: So um, I want to bring it back to the the question of the the. The leader you know like so there's the values of the organization the, you right. know, um second tier and then um what kind of leader is able to you know i guess we're saying there's not a heroic leader that implements all of that but i'm getting at like what kind of leader is able to be part of an organization like that or you know influence
1: be a player well, with an organization to, to the account. point you would be picking up about ascent and descent, right? Yeah. Uh, as you move up, as you level up, as you go from you know red to blue to orange to green to yellow to turquoise, you transcend and include, right? So you go to the next level, and hopefully you'll take the best of the previous level with you. Um, so that means that if you need to retrace your steps and descend to an earlier level. Uh, and operate in that way, you still can do that. So if you take Obama as a, uh, a lovely example of what I think was a yellow leadership uh, uh, sort of stance, uh, and that was his value system. Um, you know, he's able to handle a huge amount of complexity. The only American president to get healthcare reform through, uh, you know, the Senate and Congress. Nobody else could do it. He was sufficiently sophisticated he could do that but there were moments in his presidency where he had to descend the spiral. So when there was the uh, oil spill in the Gulf, you know, he has to turn up to Texas, which is a, from a values point, very much the red state. You know, we know that because they've got a big gun, you know, I've got a big gun. So that puts me in charge and I've got a big hat, um, you know, and a big gun. So I'm in charge. Um, So he starts to language um, in the oil spill uh, to the red audience. So he starts, descends the spiral, drops off the yellow, starts to talk about British petroleum, not BP, British, in a slightly xenophobic kind of language. And that went on for a week or two until the British government uh, sort of complained. And he went, all oh, right, fair enough. Goes back to Washington, gets back on his yellow perch. So uh, the best yellow leaders can move up and down the spiral, they have that level of flexibility. So that's why I say actually, you know getting this going in corporations is unbelievably important. Um, and it's the easiest for most leaders to get their heads around because they've experienced it. They've seen it in their life. They've experienced um, the fact that they're customer base. Some of them um, you know want to buy one get one free because they come from the orange value system. Some of them want to know what the supply chain providence of whether you're using sweatshops in China or India, And so the morality and ethics of your supply chain, because they've got the blue value system and they're operating from there. I thought that would be green, but okay. No, green is taking care of. Okay. Uh, The morality and ethics is the blue value system. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. um, So, you know, uh, if you want to look at, you know, um, the provenance of any product, um, packaging is the green value system. So some people will go, well, I'm not going to buy this product because it's got a load of plastic and that's not good for the environment. That's the green value system. Right. So most business people have experienced in their working life these different value systems, which is why you know we think the coaching community needs to start taking this language out on a mass scale. yes, we can hone it and tweak the language, but let's get it out there let's get everybody using this and getting you know corporate uh, leaders waking up to the fact that there is these developmental levels that you can level up. Um, uh, and that is our yeah. greatest hope, I think, of really, you know, uh, moving the dial in the time frame we've got. So uh,
0: to the, we've got a few minutes left and there's two areas uh, we could go. Like one is I'm curious to ask you about um, things like spirituality, spiritual practice, mm-hmm. um, even um, transcending the self, you know, mm-hmm. you talked about transcend and include. And I think, a lot of the leaders I've worked with actually have responded very well to that kind of exploration yep. in complexity. So I think I'm taking us in a certain direction now. Yeah, um, I'll leave the other one. So yeah, they, they are. They recognise that there's um, experiential intensity of complexity that requires them to cultivate their, uh, you know, the physical their somatic intelligence so that they recognize when they are tightening and contracting in the face of yep. you know, a difficult conversation or a complex environment and that meditation and spiritual inquiry helps them to do that because it helps them to move beyond, for example, in the beginning, beyond just being identified with the, the thinking self, the mini me that's yep. oriented around maintaining status and control. Yeah. Uh, and so, what do you think about that? You know, I've been quite like 10 years ago, five years ago, it was like a, you know, no go area, or at least very few people. But it seems now that a lot of people are opening up to that
1: as a valid. Well, uh, It's interesting because they're opening it up according to their own value system. So you see many people on the orange Valley system, almost doing competitive spirituality, you know, competitive meditation. You know, like oh, I meditate hours a day. You know, I I do ten hours a day. You know, it's like for Yorkshireman sketch, you know, where we're trying to compete on how much uh, meditation practice we're doing, um, and that's because we're operating with the orange value system. So your meditative practice uh, often can get sort of uh, sort of contaminated with your value system. Now, of course, that's ironic because your meditative practice is designed to evolve you. Uh, And help you transcend the constraint of your own development. Um, So, uh, if people are using it for, um, you know, to, uh, you know, get beyond their physical constraints, um, as you really get into spiritual practice, uh, where you get to is beyond, first of all, the physical, beyond the emotional, um, uh, and beyond identity itself um so uh actually most people are still hugely wrapped up in their identity um i am my job you know so you meet somebody you know either a, a you know uh, over zoom and ask them, well tell me a bit about yourself and what they do is they tell you about their job you know because they're still you know their identity is still wrapped up in their job i am an accountant you know right. i am a pilot kind of idea or i am the cfo uh no no that, that's your job mate you know who are you I, i'm the cfo you know no, no, that is your job, you know, that kind of idea. So the spiritual path is really designed to get you uh, sufficiently transcending beyond, not only the physical and emotional, but beyond the conceptual idea of your identity into the genuinely transcendent. And then if you really open up in those dimensions, and I've written about this in 4D Leadership and so on, uh, where, you, where you end up is starting to deal with the, the nature of, the constructed nature of reality itself. Right. That's where that takes you. And your identity starts to disappear in the rearview mirror. So you become less enamored of, concerned or worried about who you are. You've gone way beyond that because it starts to uh, sort of degrade as a, as an intellectual concept. Uh, you transcend that, you know, so I'm not wrapped up in the notion of Alan anymore. You know, it's more about, you know, uh, my purpose and what I'm doing here on the planet um, rather than who i am i mean who i am is you know starts to become perceived as a rather childish notion
0: well and um i i think any genuine spiritual practice must be doing what you're saying you know that it's not just a tool which is appropriated by the the identity but it actually works on the identity itself yes, you know and, exactly. um i like what you said about the constructed nature of reality because i think in a way it's like um, what kind of leadership emerges from there where you can, you can um, take a certain construction complex or not and, and um, you can actually like, be free from it or see it as an object and therefore reconstruct uh, exactly. another that becomes much more effective or it's
1: much more skillful or you know, complex. Or. Exactly. So most people are still stuck in uh, concept awareness, you know, so you'll see in business. Well, here's my idea. Blah 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 blah. Right. So I've got an idea, and I'm going to try and impose it and make money from it, uh, or, or you know, drive my career. Uh, so that's concept awareness. Now, uh, when you evolve, particularly when you get to green and pluralism and all of that, you get context awareness, where you start to realise that your ideas only work in certain contexts. So you move from concept awareness to context awareness. Um, And, uh, of course, if you're in context awareness, uh, the people who are still stuck at concept awareness, you know, you can't talk to each other properly. I remember uh, coaching a marketing director uh, uh, of a big retailer um, and he would turn up to the board and go, "Okay, uh, uh, here's the marketing plan. So if we're trying to achieve margin, what we want to do is A, B and C. Uh, If we want volume, what we need to do is X, Y and Z. Um, And if we want market share, it's P, Q and R. And the board, who were still stuck in concept awareness, would say to him, look, stop messing about. What's the right answer? Yeah. And you go, well, it depends which one you want. No, 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 no. Just give us the answer. And he goes, well, it depends what answer you're looking for. If you want market share, it's this. If you want volume, it's that. If you want profitability, it's this other thing. Just tell us. Mm-hmm. And they were literally, because he was coming from context awareness and they were coming from concept awareness. Uh, and so they were misfiring and they ended up sort of sacking him because they thought he was wishy-washy. And he went on to become a very successful CEO of another company. Uh, But where the spiritual journey takes you is you get a true liberation. You get into something called construct awareness, which enables you to transcend context. And once you realize that constructed nature, not only of your own identity, this thing called Alan, you know, it's just an artificial construction. Uh, But also you start to be able to objectify not only identity, but I objectify the rules of reality itself. That is the true liberation of the spiritual path Mm. um, is you realize that all things are constructed, including reality itself. Mm. uh, And that's when the fun begins really, Joe. Yeah.
0: Nice. Uh, Well, that, that seems like a really neat way to end. We said we'd go for an hour. I want to respect that. But, if you have a moment, where can we find out about your training, you offer for coaches, and the work you do?
1: Yeah, so go to complete-coherence.com, uh, and uh, on, the, on the website and the navigation button, uh, you can just uh, search for the value certification. Uh, and I generally, we've, we've opened this up to, to coaches, and uh, so we'll license you, um, and then you delivering uh, the feedback and all the work you know, you keep all the money. So we've tried to create a win-win model. Uh, You buy the instrument off us, but everything else is yours. Mm. Um, So uh, I think we've just seen in the 10,000 people we've done on that database so far, it just has such validity and it opens up a brilliant conversation as a coach Mm. and opens leaders up, you know, in a very quick and easy way uh, to the whole notion of their own evolution, their own development uh so i think that if we started just speaking with one language in the coaching community about this uh we could work sort of informally as a, a huge collective to shift the planet uh because that's what's required as the clock's ticking mm. Be-
0: beautiful thank you thanks alan okay okay here we are i hope you enjoyed this podcast and if you're not on our mailing list and you want to sign up and stay in the loop about cool offerings we create, then you can head to coachesrising.com. Scroll down there, you'll find a sign up box. Also, if you feel like sharing this podcast, I'd be very grateful. Uh, yeah, just to get the word out to as many coaches as possible. You go to coachesrising.com forward slash podcast, you'll find the individual podcast page page there. And Click on it, scroll down, you'll find share buttons and thanks for that. And I will see you again next time. Be well.